Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. What is happening? I don't know. I'm I'm reading a message that that we got uh, on the Book of Faces. You remember a bunch of episodes ago we we uh, we we played a I guess a practical joke. People who were uh, listening to the podcast near their Amazon Echo, we we ordered a bunch of weird products. Yeah, we asked her to add things to the shopping yeah, list. Yeah, like butt plugs right. and stuff like that. Uh, this message just came in. Okay, guys, the one time I'm cleaning a client's house and I don't have my headphones on because they're charging. And what episode is playing? Episode 77. Thanks so much for adding butt plugs to my clients who are now at church preaching this fine Sunday morning's shopping list. I removed it, but I'm not sure how Alexa works, so not sure if it still shows up for them. If I get fired or have to explain this to them, I might die. Send butt plug. I mean prayers. And then there's a series of uh, crying, laughing emojis. Yeah, there was no that. butt plug emojis. So. No but no. Although we should start our own box of oddities <laughs> set of emojis. The first one will be Mr. Butt Plug. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm just I got a flood of images in my head of yeah. box of oddities emojis. Yeah, there's so much we could do. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, Sorry. Yeah. What was her name? Simone. Sorry. Sorry, Simone. About that. <clears throat> oh. <laughs> Also, um, unrelated to butt plugs, I wanted to um, just, I am frequently overwhelmed at this amazing, warm, loving community that has sprung up, these people that we talk to every day and are uh, engaged and really reached out when uh, Wilbo was sick and we got so many incredible messages, kind words and thoughts. And I just, I I really appreciate it so much. He is feeling better. He's still a little horky. He's, um, 
diagnosed with a collapsing trachea. Yeah. So it's not a fun thing, but he has uh, he has calmed down. He seems to be on the mend. And uh, for now, he's doing pretty good. We love you so much. Yeah. And uh, and we all appreciate it. Willie's getting a little cocky, though, now, since he got all those messages on Facebook. He's he's demanding his own page. <laughs> well, there is the, the litter box of oddities. That's and that's true. that's a place where uh, we encourage you to share your uh, pet photos. And uh, you'll see Bilbo mm-hmm. and uh, Banjo and... Uh, any other animal I run into, really. Right, right. Uh, on and, there. and by the way, Bilbo, Wilbo, Billy, Willie, uh, Willie Longlegs. William J. Bottomtooth. William J. Bottomtooth. Sir William yeah, yeah, of have, Strathenham. Right. Willie Bones Jones. We have several names for him. Yeah, it's all the same dog. All right, I get to go first today. Ooh. And we're going to take a, a little trip to the past. And when I say the past, I'm I'm talking about... Medieval period. Now, this is very interesting to me. I find it fascinating. Uh, we still have to watch that movie that you told me about. Excalibur? Yes. Yeah. And also, medieval versus medieval. I'm growing up, I was under the impression <laughs> that it was medieval. Well, I think. And I, I think most people. people pronounce it that way, but it is technically. Medieval. Medieval. And since we say it so fast, it sounds like medieval. It is medieval. Whatever. Anyway, Dark Ages. Let's call it that. Good. Yes. Okay. All right. Now, the Dark Ages was, in case you were were not clear on this, dark. Right. It was... In general. It was a bad time. And what was the worst time? The darkest of the Dark Ages. Well, the... Dark Ages were between the years like 600 and 1600. Is that correct? You were just talking about that the other night, which is what gave me the idea for for doing this topic. Um, And that sounds about right. Yeah. Maybe slightly earlier than that, because historians agree. 400 to 1600? The year 536 was the worst year ever. (laughs) To be alive. That's amazing. I love that that's a thing. 536. Okay, hold on a second. I'm going to write this down. 536. Okay. Um, dear historians who took the time to figure this out, I adore you. Yep. The darkest of the dark ages was the year 536. Now, the following years weren't that great either, but 536 <laughs> really blew. So what happened? Well... It started early in the year when a mysterious fog came in and blanketed most of Europe. And never left? That's that's what happened to The London. end. <laughs> now, I guess in the 1520s, a mysterious fog rolled in over Europe, um, but only stayed for a, a, a few weeks. Now, this is all according to Ranker.com. In 536, Procopius, who was a military advisor to uh, Belisarius one of Byzantine Empire's most distinguished generals. He wrote this. These are these are actual reports from the time, contemporary reports. Quote, For the sun gave forth its light without brightness, like the moon, during the whole year, and it seemed exceedingly like a sun in eclipse. For the beams it shed were not clear, nor such as it is accustomed to shed. And from that time, when this thing happened, men were free neither from war nor from pestilence. 
nor any other thing that leadeth to death. Oh my goodness. But he wasn't the only source that uh, that documented this. A Byzantine scribe, the guy's name was Michael the Syrian. He wrote, quote, The sun was eclipsed for 18 months. For three hours in the morning it would give light, but a light that resembled neither night nor day. There were other sources in the Mediterranean area that uh, referenced this fog, oh. this cloud, that was there for the entire year of 536 and well into the next year. Wow. And, of course, they didn't know what was going on. Many people in modern times thought it was uh, the result of a meteor strike. Oh. That had kicked up debris and blackened the sky, depositing ash around the globe. But the fog was just the beginning. Because when that happened, it really messed up crops. Sure. And the agriculture. So famine became widespread in 536. Yeah. Um, temperatures around the Earth dropped an average of 2.5 degrees Celsius. And uh, civilizations just struggled to uh, to get their crops in. Well, you know, they get the crops in, but nothing would grow. Right. Or it would just grow a little bit. Michael the Syrian again said, during that year, fruit did not reach the point of maturity Mm. and all the land became as though transformed into something half alive or like someone suffering from a long illness. And that's how we got baby carrots. Yep. That's it. The end. (laughs) Now, the issues with the crops, it wasn't just localized around the Mediterranean or any one particular area. It extended from Ireland all the way through continental Europe. Across Asia, into China, and famine became widespread. Oh, my goodness. So you've got this mysterious fog that rolls in. Which is a bummer. You can't work on your tan. Then the crops are all messed up, so you're hungry and you're pale. And then the plague sets in. Oh, no. All the same year. Again, Michael the Syrian wrote, quote, an unprecedented plague ensued, which began in Constantinople, where the first day, the first day of the plague, 5,000 people died. How do you know it was the first day? This is what this is what he says. All right. You know what? Michael. Was that his name? (laughs) Yeah. Can I call you Mike? Sure. Mike, I don't think that was the first day of the plague. I'm just saying. Well, he says the second day was 10,000, the third day 15,000, the fourth 18,000. And who's counting these? Well, I'm getting to that. Okay, I'm sorry. The figures reported by auditors that the emperor had placed at the gates of the city and counted the dead bodies as they were being towed out of the uh, out of the city. It just sounds like suspiciously round numbers to me. (laughs) No one, of course was immune uh it first attacked the poorer class population as this shit often does and then it uh it spread to merchants and then ultimately uh nobility including the imperial palace the symptoms were described as a sore forming in the palm of the hand progressing until the affected uh could not take a step legs would swell and then little things uh, Pus pockets would burst on their legs and pus would run out. Clearly, this was the bubonic plague. Again, according to Michael the Syrian, the presence of the disease in Constantinople really started to make the uh, the city stink. Sure. Because of the unburied. There were so many of them that ultimately what they decided to do was just throw all the dead people into the ocean. And there were 300,000 <laughs> of them. And they all just washed back ashore. Well, yeah, that's not how 
ocean nope. works. Nope. And that was one more lesser thing that contributed to 536 being the worst year ever. No title charts. The Emperor Justinian ordered them to uh, be removed from the cities. And then the bearers, the people who would carry them away, got the disease. And it killed them so quickly in many cases that they would be carrying the dead out. And they would themselves drop dead oh, wow. on the spot. There were reports of people breaking into the dead's houses to gather up their treasures but they would not even make it out the door. They would just die at the door with their arms full of treasures. So, See what happens when you loot? Your treasure is a pus-filled pocket on your leg. Good day to you, sir. <clears throat> Things got even worse in other parts of the empire. The plague spread to Egypt, and reports were that to one city in particular, only seven men and one boy remained alive. What? That was what came to be called the Plague of Justinian. Bubonic plague, obviously. Uh, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but, you know, certainly sounds like the Black Death. It took out millions of people in the Byzantine Empire between 536 and the mid-8th century. So that shit was around for a while. For a bit then. Yeah. Then it began to snow in the summer. What? Yep. Like snow, snow? Snow, snow. It began to snow in China. That's like what we're going through right now. In Maine, yeah. Freak snowstorm we just got yesterday. It's still snowing. Fortunately, we have no pus nodules. As of yet. Yeah, but we make no promises. In the Chronicles of the Southern Dynasties, uh, they reported frost in midsummer and snow in August in uh, parts of China and various provinces. The result was increased widespread famine that pushed the famine uh, another two years out and roughly killed 70 to 80 percent of the population. There were also reports of snow and frost in uh, Mesopotamia, and that was in the summer of 536. And the winter was, you know, even worse than it would normally be. Right. It was like summer was winter and winter was... Uber winter? Uber winter. It was so bad that Scandinavians abandoned entire cities they're they're not sure if that was the only reason but it certainly looks like it's a pretty good one uh the norse legend called thimble winter includes a three-year-long winter that occurred before ragnarok the end of the world also referred to as the twilight of the gods so they thought you know it's the end of the world as we know it and i feel not so fine right and did thor show up to help no where's thor when you need him There were also monks in Ireland that documented all of this. They called it the time of the failure of bread. In 536, they wrote about this. And they said there were massive bread shortages between 536 and 539. People didn't know what the hell was going on. This was 536. Mm. Very limited understanding of meteorology and uh, really no means. Grow lights. No grow lights. No way to really disseminate information. Even if somebody knew what was causing this, how do you get it out there? There's no emergency alert system. Right. So the layer of fog really stressed people out, and they struggled to understand its origins. Roman historian Cassiodorus emphasized the unease brought on by the cloud. He wrote a letter to uh, one of his associates and said, quote, Strange has been the course of the year thus far. We have had winter without storms, a spring without mildness, and a summer without heat. 
Whence can we look for harvest since the months which should have been maturing the corn have been chilled by Boreas? How can the blade open if rain, the mother of all fertility, is denied? The middle air is thickened by the rigor of snow and rarefied by the beams of sun. Basically, he's saying it's a real shitty year. Yeah, but he said it so beautifully. He did. Historians say that all of these events that took place in 536 and the uh, immediate years following, uh, following that led to the fall of the Roman Empire. Oh. With the outbreak of the bubonic plague... By 541, the Byzantine Empire lost between 35 and 55 percent of its population. It weakened uh, weakened the empire economically. Uh, it caused social upheaval, of course, disease, strife. It was all triggered by these events of 536. Now, I mentioned that for quite a while, many scientists and historians thought that this was possibly due to a meteor. Right. Others say. A volcanic eruption, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't until 2018, last year, that they definitively determined in their minds what caused this. Harvard historian Michael McCormick uh, was among a group who pulled their research to determine whether 536 was truly the worst year ever. And they all said, yeah, pretty much the worst year ever. But during a different expedition, they had drilled ice cores from Iceland and they found volcanic debris at the level of the year, which would be the year 536. In addition, dendrochronologists, those are the guys who study tree rings, Mm -hmm. said they found the same thing that uh, what would have been the year 536 Mm -hmm. and then following, there were much, much smaller rings. What they determined was, and these were trees in Iceland, and so what they determined was that a giant volcano in Iceland erupted and the cloud drifted down over Europe and the Mediterranean and into Asia. And so it was, in fact... A volcano in Iceland that, that caused the worst year ever, 536. I can't imagine that the intensity of living in an environment where there's a volcanic ash cloud everywhere. Mm. There's no food. Everyone's pissed and pussy. Pissed and pussy. And then you think about like the living environments as it is. I mean, everything's dark, like inside and outside and sooty and ashy. And and the streets are full of human excrement. You can't breathe well. Everyone smells bad. There are rotting bodies washing up on the shore. It just doesn't sound great. I don't like getting into a taxi cab for a lot of those reasons. No, I gotta wash the cab off my hands. The uh, same scientists drilling through these ice samples determined that things did improve, but it was a century later. It was a hundred years of this bullshit. Wow. With 536 being the worst of them all. Annie Hoosel, there you go. That was really interesting. Thank you. You're welcome. I enjoyed that. I mean, obviously, I, you know, I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't like, you enjoyed it. it. I I mean, it's fascinating. Sure. It was long enough ago where I can say, ooh, neat. (laughs) And now the Box of Oddities brings you that thing in the middle. So back in 1987, a guy shows up at a hospital emergency room complaining of rectal pain. After a series of x-rays, they determined that there was something lodged in his butt. Upon further examination, they determined it was concrete. 
When questioned, the guy said that he and his boyfriend had been fooling around, and his boyfriend poured concrete in his butt through a funnel, which then quickly hardened. The emergency room personnel were able to successfully extract the concrete, but they noticed something strange about the top of it. They chipped away some of the concrete and found a ping-pong ball. Apparently, they were trying to retrieve a ping-pong ball with the use of wet concrete. The man was released and apparently had no further complications. But don't put concrete in your butt. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Someday. They'll let me out of this little announcer's booth. But until then, this is The Box of Oddities. We're going to talk today about 
Jane Stanford. Jane Stanford. Jane Stanford. Jane Stanford was not born Jane Stanford. She was born Jane Elizabeth Lanthrop in Albany, New York. She was the daughter of a shopkeeper. And um, in 1850, she married Leland Stanford and became Jane Stanford. Okay. Jane went to live with Leland in Wisconsin, where he had practiced law since 1884. I moved those numbers around. It's 1848. Mm-hmm. And they lived in Port Washington until 1852 when his law library and other property were lost to fire. The couple moved to Sacramento in 1856, where Stanford built up a lucrative mercantile business. With his profits, he invested in the newly formed Central Pacific Railroad. And within a decade, he'd become one of the richest men in the country. So... Leland and Jane are doing okay. Leland served as governor of California from 1862 to 1863, and he and Jane were doing pretty great. They tried, however, to have a baby for 18 years. Well, they must have been exhausted, and and he was probably chafed. For sure. (laughs) You know, I mean, good Lord. They had been unsuccessful, but then in 1868, their son, Leland Stanford Jr., was born. And as you can imagine, they're a very affluent family. They had been trying for this baby for 18 years. They thought he was a miracle. Um, They're very excited about this baby. They love him. They adore him. They literally serve him on a platter to their friends. They had a big party when uh, they got home from the hospital, like a big party. And everyone's sitting at the, the around this giant dining table and Leland brings in the silver platter takes off the top and there's this beautiful baby surrounded by flowers and he's like meet Leland meet Leland or Leland meet no 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 that's how they introduced Leland that seems really weird it is weird but they were they were so infatuated with this baby they were so pleased it's like somebody hey come on over we're gonna do a little housework uh Oh, open up the dishwasher. There's a baby in there. Surprise. It's our son. Yeah, it was unusual for sure. But they they were excited about having a baby. This baby was doing pretty okay. He's from letters that he wrote and... Uh, drawings. It was he was very bright. He was kind, and that his mom brought him up to be very thoughtful. And that one report says he was looking out the front window one day as a child, and he was horrified to see a small mongrel dog with a broken leg. So he ran out, got the dog, brought him inside, bathed him, and bandaged his limb, Aww. and then summoned the family doctor to find out what he should do next. <laughs> Which is so cute. I just, I find that incredibly endearing and I love him. So as he's approaching his 16th birthday, Jane and Leland planned a grand tour of Europe to celebrate. Not long into the trip, though, young Leland fell ill. And while in Athens, he was diagnosed with typhoid. He was sent to Italy for treatment. But doctors, even though they spared no expense, uh, could do nothing for him. And he died two months shy of his 16th birthday Mm. in 1884. So, of course, Leland and Jane are broken up about it. They're distraught. And Leland says to his wife, the children of California should be our children. So he founded the Leland Stanford Jr. University in their son's honor. And the university opened in 1891. Gotcha. 
I did not know this. Two years later, Leland dies. Um, He was then a United States senator. It's 1893, and the university is still new. Jane takes over. And it was at her direction that Stanford University gained an early focus on the arts. She was um, advocating the admission of women, and the the university had been co-educational since its founding. She featured prominently in the issue of academic freedom when she sought and ultimately succeeded in having a professor fired for making speeches favoring Democrat William Jennings Bryan and favoring racism against Chinese Americans. Um, So she was like, you know what, this is what Stanford's about. Get out, basically. And she's tremendously popular with the students. Uh, Mrs. Stanford, though, was rumored to be sometimes a little clashy when it came to the administration, like the, the word on the street, Stanford streets, is that... Maybe she was considered a little radical sometimes. Maybe she was a lady person who had too much say, what have you, Uh whatever. There were even murmurs that some members of the board would prefer to run the university without her influence. It's 1903 now, and she did transfer her rights as the co-founder to the board. So she's given up her rights to the university, but she still plays a role on the board. So Jane Stanford, we know her deal now. We get it. Okay. It's 1905, and it's January. She's at her Knob Hill mansion in San Francisco, which is a lovely name for a place. I love saying Knob Hill. Mrs. Stanford drank a glass of Poland Spring mineral water from a bottle placed in her room, as it was every night, by a household servant, and she detected a bitter taste, so she immediately induced herself to vomit and called for her secretary, Miss Bertha Burner, and her maid. They each tasted the water and agreed that it had a very queer and bitter taste, and it was sent to the pharmacy for analysis. It did take a little bit of time for the pharmacy to figure out what was going on with the water, uh, but the verdict did return that that water had been poisoned with enough strychnine to prove fatal. Wow. It's really interesting that even back then, when somebody would taste something that that had a bad flavor, they would go, oh, this is awful. Taste it. It's (laughs) like in our DNA. It's universal. It is. It's one of the things that I really have grown to love about Antony on Queer Eye, Um, his his love of things that smell bad. <laughs> yeah. Watching want- <laughs> Anthony clean out the fridge is a real treat. I want more of that in my life. So uh, Stanford immediately moved out of her mansion, vowing never to return. And Elizabeth Richmond, who was the maid, fell under suspicion. She had previously worked in Britain, and she had talked to the other house staff about tales of English aristocrats being poisoned by their servants, uh, allegedly. That's a big red flag. And she was dismissed. But the Harry Morse Detective and Patrol Agency was retained. They investigated the incident, and there was no source for the strychnine. They couldn't really tie it to her. Um, She was just let go, and that was the end of that. Hmm. But Jane's pretty bummed, because she knows someone tried to kill her. Right. And she's also got a cold, and her doctor's recommending her to get out of that nasty San Francisco weather, which, looking out the window as it's snowing right now, makes me a little angry. (laughs) 
Um, also, she was filled with worry because there were reports from faculty at the university that she was not confident whether or not university president David Starr Jordan was the right man for the institution. And of course, this is like her and her husband's legacy and it's in her son's name. Right, right. So she wants it to do well. She's very invested and she's concerned. So what's the solution? Hawaii. <laughs> Stanford shortly decides they're going to sail to Hawaii. They're going to continue on to Japan. She's going to do nice, fun things and get better. So the Stanford party left San Francisco for Honolulu, February 15, 1905. I wish I could go to Hawaii when I have a cold. Me too. I wish I could go to Hawaii ever. <laughs> <laughs> so it's now February 28. And I imagine that's how long it took to sail to Hawaii. Jane is uh, getting ready to retire to bed at the Moana Hotel in Honolulu. And Miss Stanford requested bicarbonate of soda as a digestive aid, uh, which her personal secretary, Bertha Burner, prepared. And a little after 11 p.m., Mrs. Stanford woke her servants up with cries. I am so sick. Run for the doctor. I have no control over my body. I think I've been poisoned oh, again. no. Mrs. Stanford, now in anguish, is exclaiming, my jaws are stiff. This is a horrible death to die. Whereupon she was seized by spasms that progressed relentlessly to a state of severe rigidity. Doctors are called, and this is how it went down. Her jaws clamped shut, her feet twisted inwards, mm. her fingers and thumbs clenched into fists, and her head drew back. Finally, respiration ceased. According to Stanford Magazine, an autopsy and inquiry by the coroner's jury followed, as, you know, obviously w was going to happen. And after reviewing the autopsy report and hearing three days of testimony, the jury took only two minutes to reach its conclusion. Jane Lanthrop Stanford came to her death from strychnine poisoning. Said strychnine having been introduced into the bottle of bicarbonate of soda with felonious intent by some person or persons to this jury unknown. So her personal servant was the one who gave her this stuff, right? Uh, but there was no indication that she knew it was in the bottle. Well, I think there was, you know, obviously some concern that, that she did know. Um, but I think that this... This inquiry was more about what killed her rather than who killed her. I gotcha. Okay. The testimony revealed that the bottle in question had been purchased in California after that maid that was previously thought to have been a part of her Initial poisoning point. attempt. Right. Yeah. Um, after she'd been let go. But it had been accessible to anyone in Stanford's residence during that period while her party was packing, and it had not been used until the night of her death. Okay, so we know all the things that we know about this, right? Of course we do. We just said that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Most history books attribute Mrs. Stanford's death at the age of 76 to heart failure. Stanford University President David Starr Jordan, immediately after word of Jane Stanford's death, sailed to Hawaii himself and hired a local doctor, 
Ernest Waterhouse to dispute poisoning as the cause of death. He subsequently reported to the press that Stanford had died of heart failure. Well, that's not suspicious much. Despite exhibiting no known symptoms of a heart condition, his analysis of the autopsy report led him to conclude that there was a layer of fat around her heart and that exacerbated by a full meal of picnic sandwiches and treats earlier that day had killed her. Uh Uh-huh. Death by sandwich. Death by picnic. Well, I mean, isn't that reportedly what happened to Zachary Taylor? Like, he had That's right. a bunch of cucumber sandwiches and yep. then died. Mm-hmm. Oh, he also had cherries, right? And yeah, milk. and milk. Yeah, so he died by milk. A delicious lunch. Yeah. Except for milk. I don't like milk. But I do love cherries. And they're good for uh, helping to ease the symptoms of gout, according to my dad. Now... <laughs> Jordan's motives for involving himself in the case are uncertain. However, he had written the new president of Stanford's Board of Trustees, offering several alternate explanations for Jane Stanford's death, suggesting that they select whichever be most suitable. Oh, my God. He wasn't very sophisticated, was he? (laughs) On March 21st, Mrs. Stanford's remains arrived in San Francisco. The flags of every vessel in the bay were at half-mast. As her hearse traveled down the waterfront, thousands lined the sidewalks to pay their respects. At Stanford, the halls and classrooms were quiet. All activities were canceled for a week. She was... Beloved. Very well respected. And Jordan made a pronouncement to the press. Contrary to early reports of poisoning, Mrs. Stanford had died of heart failure. Uh Uh-huh. And that's the story that made the history books. No kidding. Even though he's not a doctor. No. And he didn't have any way to, like, he doesn't, he's can't, he's not the. No. You don't get to. But he did. But he did. She died from a picnic lunch. So it's 2003. Stanford physician Robert W.P. Cutler writes a book called The Mysterious Death of Jane Stanford. And he says that Jordan's theory of heart failure due to sandwich (laughs) is a medically preposterous diagnosis given the dramatic and highly distinctive symptoms of strychnine poisoning that she obviously displayed. Yeah. Her toes were turned in. Mm Mm-hmm. Her hands were all balled up. She was in some sort of spasm. Yeah. Her head was, yeah, it sounds more like some sort of a poisoning as opposed to indigestion. Cutler wrote, It seems remarkable today that the considered opinions of the attending and autopsy physicians, the toxicologists, the Honolulu Police Department, and the coroner's jury could be so easily dismissed on the basis of a brief declaration by President Jordan. Incredible. It really is. Jordan also took a considerable amount of time to badmouth the doctors in Hawaii, as well as their police department, and uh, discredited every single one of the people involved in the investigation and the jury. Huh. And because at the time, there was still a real attitude about Hawaii as being like full of savages like you know because they're brown Ah. they don't know what they're doing Mm -hmm. so the racist attitudes really lent to that idea that they don't know what they're doing anyway so i can just say what i want to say and that's some bullshit so waterhouse the doctor that jordan brought in to say yeah probably it was the sandwiches um (laughs) was paid 
the present day equivalent of $7,000 for a four page report, which was put together without really much investigation. Was it heavily redacted? (laughs) Yeah, but uh, I can tell you there's nothing to worry about inside. Okay, good. So with this report, he was confronted uh, and accused of unethical conduct for consulting on the case without any firsthand knowledge. And so Waterhouse sought an attorney and then fled the country. It's unclear whether he fled to escape threats of exposure about his unethical practices, but he claimed that he'd always wanted to start a rubber plantation. So that's what he was going to do. Okay. It was the dream. So what the hell, right? The records show that only one person was present at both poisoning incidents, and that was the personal secretary, Bertha Burner. It also should be noted that in Jane Stanford's will, it says this, I give and bequeath to Miss Bertha Burner, secretary and devoted friend to me of 19 years of trial and sorrow, the sum of $15,000. And Bertha Burner knew about this $15,000 that was coming to her upon Jane Stanford's death. It also should be noted that over the years, Burner's story changed multiple times, both in interviews to Hawaiian police, during the coroner's inquest, and in public statements. Her final written account of Miss Stanford's last day included the claim that Mrs. Stanford ate four Swiss cheese sandwiches, two tongue sandwiches, two lettuce sandwiches, two or three large pieces of gingerbread, two cold cups of coffee, and 12 or 14 pieces of French candy at lunch. Which sounds a little bit um, like someone's trying to say she ate a lot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So was she in cahoots with the president of Stanford? Who knows? Wouldn't it be great to be able to see if maybe there was some sort of a financial transaction between the two? It'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. Wouldn't it? Is there any way we can do this? Because I think I've solved it. <laughs> the source of the strychnine was never identified. Stanford was buried alongside her husband, Leland, and their son at the Stanford Family Mausoleum on Stanford campus. And that's all that we know. It's still a mystery. We don't know why Jordan was so invested in making sure that it didn't look like a poisoning if it was just to protect the university, which sounds meh mm. to me. Mm. Or it, we don't know. Um, but if you're interested in reading the book written by Stanford physician Robert W.P. Cutler, it's called The Mysterious Death of Jane Stanford. I've added it to our Goodreads page. I also got information from Stanford Magazine, the San Francisco Gate, and of course, Wikipedia. They still haven't paid you for that jingle yet, have Mm-mm. they? No. In fact, I give them money. It's nuts. <laughs> I had never heard this story. Yeah. Fascinating. And it makes me a little angry. You know, it makes me a lot angry. Me too. I hate it. Yep. I hate it when you know something horrible has been done by somebody and they get away with it. Yeah. I hate it. That's a controversial stance. Yeah. But I, I, I support you. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking rough. I'm going out on a limb there with that. <laughs> I know. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? It's been over 100 years, so... I don't know. I read about Bertha Burner's nice two-story house she had built after hmm. the death, and I just, I don't know, I resent that house. How old was this Bertha Burner lady? Oh. Do we know? Um, I don't know right off the top of my head, no. Because Mrs. Stanford was what? Her late 70s mm-hmm. when she was poisoned. She probably didn't have a lot of time left. Back in those days, that was a pretty good life. Pretty full life. 
And if this woman was younger, why would she go to this much trouble to hurry along an inheritance by maybe a couple of years? Maybe, I mean, I hate to speculate on people's feelings because they're so... Subjective? Subjective is a good word. I was going to say uh, flibbity-jibbity, but yes, it could have been anything. Maybe she resented that she did all this work for Mrs. Stanford and... 19 years. You know, and mm. Mrs. Stanford was always sad. I don't know. Who knows? All I know is that the Bertha Burner house, uh, which was built in 1899, was built by Charles Edward Hodges who worked for the London architectural firm of N.S. Joseph and Pearson. Sorry, I just pulled up the Bertha Burner house. It's a nice house. It's lovely. It's it real is. nice. Yeah. I resent that she had that house. Though maybe she didn't, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's, I can't, I mean, I suspect, but, you know. I think it was a conspiracy. I like that idea very yeah. much. I think it, they both had something to gain from this. And um, yeah, that's my theory. That's my thought. And I'm usually right. So <laughs> anyway, as the snow pounds down mid-April in Maine, God, that's coming down hard. That is really depressing. <laughs> it's supposed to be spring already. Well, it gives us more opportunity to huddle in our bedroom and create podcasts. You know what? You're right. We know that warm is on its way. This is not going to stick around forever. It's not volcanic ash. No, it's not that. So, oh, the birds are back. <gasps> Hi, birds. I got to go feed them. All right. Box of oddities. It lands on your phone twice a week. We will see you on Monday. You got, you got to do your part. Until then, uh, keep flying that freak flag. So, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash BoxOfOdditiesPodcast On Twitter at BoxOfOddities And Instagram at BoxOfOdditiesPodcast Copyright 2019, all rights reserved Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.